0: So today we have with us a guy that's doing very, very interesting things in the town of Rochester, New York, heard him on another podcast. And not only is that interesting, but he's also doing a lot of stuff in office, which I find to be fascinating. It's an out of favor asset class, but I happen to know that in the right market, the right kind of product, it's fantastic. So that intrigued me so much. When I heard this gentleman, he is a partner at Oak Grove Development. He is Matt Druin. Matt, welcome to Street Smart Success.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on the show, Roger. I appreciate it, man.
0: Yeah, no, I'm super excited to have this conversation. I love guys that like own their market and just that that's all they do because in in my mind, it turns into alpha returns and mitigates a tremendous amount of risk. And I just, I just find it. And and I should also said at the top, you have a property management company, which further mitigates risk to you and investors. So Matt, let me do this. Let's start with the Matt Druin story, pre-real estate.
1: Pre-real estate. All right. So uh, let's rewind the clock a little bit. And I'm not going to go into all my childhood traumas or anything like that. But I have a tumultuous... <laughs> But I had a tumultuous childhood. I mean, I had two loving parents, and they were blue collar. My dad was a general laborer, at Genesee Brewery. My mother was a Dallas nurse, and they fought like cats and dogs. They ended up getting, you know, splitting up. My dad ended up getting, like, you know, he was married four times. And I associate a lot of this negativity in my childhood, going back to money or lack thereof. And so, and you know, my parents sold their house in the city of Rochester poured every single dime that they had into a house in a better school district to give my brother and I a better opportunity and a better education and uh, that like added to the stress factor of the whole thing plus we lived in the blue you know the blue collar side of like a white affluent uh, suburb and so i kind of grew up in this sort of inferiority complex i had you know peers that were driving to school on their 16th birthday in a brand new lexus and here I was, dumb little kid, right? I was—I had a hand-me-down Chevy Blazer. I had a car, and it was still eating me up alive. That I didn't have a brand new Lexus and that sort of thing. So I had this sort of unhealthy kind of infatuation with, it, you know, getting rich, and you know, so it, it would you know, cure all of my problems and that sort of thing, and my family's problems. So that's kind of like the foundation for how this happened. Didn't know how I was going to do it. I just knew what it wanted, to, what I wanted it to look like. And so went off to college because everybody said that you know you got to go to college. And I went to school for business administration. I started reading a lot of you know, listen to Jim you know Jim Cramer, Mad Money, and you know all all those other like you know finance gurus and that sort of thing. And I was like, all right, I'm going to be a Wall Street like guy. I don't know exactly what they do, but they deal with money and they're you know really rich and. I'm going to be just a you know typical rapacious capitalist and you know, be a cigar chomping Gordon Gecko type. <laughs> and so that's... And I graduated college and I got my slice of humble pie when I graduated in 2006. And there was no jobs for kids that had general liberal arts degrees with no experience. So the only job I could find was at a bank as a part-time teller in my hometown. And I fate was put back in that inferiority, inferiority complex dealing with my friends who were gradu- you know, graduated from like North, you know, Northwestern and Yale and Harvard and that sort of thing, depositing their paychecks right? and then looking at mine earning like twelve dollars an hour <laughs> at that time. So I hated it. So my dad was uh, had a side hustle in selling real estate, and he offered, you know, get your real estate license, I'll teach you the ropes, and that's how I got started in real estate brokerage. He kicked me out of the nest because uh, it wasn't his dream to have a twenty-something-year-old uh, living with him, in his house, and so. I had the option to either get an apartment with my friends or buy something multifamily and rent out the other units, and that's what I, you know, and that's what I ended up doing. You know, I took all the my commission checks that I'd saved and put it into that deal, and kind of the rest is history. And I was like, I knew right from that to get go there is I need to learn how to scale this thing so I can achieve my dream of becoming financially independent by the time I'm forty years old, so that I don't have money being a factor in terms of or the lack thereof of being of
0: creating this misery that was in part of my past. You and I have a lot in common, but since the podcast is about you, we're not going to talk about me maybe after we're done recording. <laughs> so so where did you go to school? I went to school is SUNY Geneseo State okay. School. Got it. Not too far from where you were from.
1: No, absolutely not. No, it was like a half an hour away. I originally had a, a scholarship uh, for a Navy ROTC scholarship to Union College. And I passed all the tests and that sort of thing. When it came to medical history, they saw that I had a history of being prescribed Ritalin and Adderall and Dexedrine and that sort of thing. And at that point in time, the military classified ADD as a mental illness. So they pulled the scholarship for me and here I was. I was like, I can't afford $45,000 a year in, intu- in tuition. So I had to basically you know, change change paths and go to a state school, which is a blessing because I graduated debt free and also I met my wife there. <laughs> okay.
0: Perfect. Okay. So as of now, you guys are doing and in and based on what I heard from you and then going to your website, you do a lot of office stuff, but you guys have also done residential. I guess what is in terms of current holdings, how does it how is it broken out percentage wise? How much is commercial? How much is residential? Like what's a brush stroke on the portfolio?
1: I guess probably 70% multifamily and 30% commercial and commercial being either retail, office or industrial is kind of how our mix is uh, broken up how we build that portfolio was just through being opportunistic so we're asset class agnostic but we are very very focused with laser like focus on our local area because that's where we have a competitive advantage in terms of our relationships our management company and also our deep deep knowledge of the market too
0: got it on the multifamily side You know, again, brushstroke, how many doors, how many buildings, vintage, what does all that look like?
1: Vintage? I mean, old, old as hell, man. Like we have, Rochester's got a lot of old housing stock, charming old homes. So typically around like 1890s, 1900. Multifamily wise, we have 76 doors under ownership and management. And then uh, on the office size, we have like about 500,000 500, square foot feet of like office, industrial, retail
0: that are part of the portfolio. And so, out of that five hundred thousand, how does it break out between office, industrial, retail? What's the biggest part?
1: I think I think probably office is about half of that. So office is probably about. I I can't do math here but you know what is <laughs>
0: 250,000 <laughs> 250,000 I'm not good yeah. at either but these easy math I can handle. <laughs> yeah. All right and then, and then retail and industrial is the other part of it. Correct. Yep. Do you have a like a to the beginning of 2024 do you have a sense of and I think I already know the answer but I'm going to ask anyway. Is do you have a sense of of one of these asset classes where there's greater opportunity right now from an acquisition standpoint, or is it just not necessarily? It's purely opportunistic, and you never know when the next deal is going to come, and and then the the asset class is second to that.
1: We're seriously looking at multifamily. We would love to get back into multifamily. It's awesome. I mean, it's incredibly more simple to uh, write business plans on value add multifamily opportunities. It's it's hard when you're looking at a you know an office building that's 50% vacant in terms of you know kind of like just putting you know putting your finger out there in the air in terms of where your tenants are going to come from, and really knowing with surety in multifamily you can you, know, you can pull the rent comps down the street see the occupancy levels we have access to CoStar, so we're able to kind of see you know mark market data and intelligence. On that, but it's a you know it's a, been a difficult market. The transaction volume is very you know is is lower than it was. Uh, we haven't done a multifamily deal in a few in a few years when things started getting crazy, and we thought we were stupid. for not jumping in. But what we saw is what we've been seeing now is that you know those people that we thought that were you know smarter than us that knew something we didn't didn't were just kind of like riding
0: a wave. Well, obviously you're probably thinking you're pretty smart right now, given kind of what's what's going on. Well, I don't know about Rochester specifically, but a lot of people got out in front of their skis and they're paying the price right now. In terms of getting into you know you want to get into multifamily for all those you know logical reasons, right? It's easier to underwrite. It's you know, there's less risk. Might not be the right word. It might not be the wrong word either. But you know, there's less unknowns. Let's put it that way. What does multifamily mean to the way you say multifamily? Is it a minimum number of doors? Is it is it certain submarkets or what exactly does it mean?
1: So generally, if it's uh, if it's located close to one of our other assets, then we'll look at something that is you know between twenty and thirty units if it's a ways outside that you know that footprint cuz our footprint's very very tight in terms of its geographic area that unit count kind of needs to go up so we can have the economies of scale cuz it, it's very difficult to scale when you're looking at you know multi-site management and sharing staff you have on payroll that have to go to fix a toilet at a property that's you know that's a half an hour drive away and it always involves a 2 hour trip to home depot I have no idea why trips to home depot take 2 hours but yeah, so we, you know, we would even look outside of our market if it was a larger you know, property, like let's say 120 units or so. Where we have the kind of scale to have a full-time manager on site, a senior maintenance tech and a junior maintenance tech reporter for a property.
0: How far out would you go if the building were big enough that it could, that it could support on-site staff?
1: Probably within a two-hour driving radius is kind of where our, our market knowledge is leaves us. So that's between you know Buffalo and Syracuse and Ithaca. Outside of that, we would passively invest, and we have passively invested with other operators in other markets that are higher growth than Rochester. Rochester is a great blend of cash flow and meager appreciation. But with myself, you know, being 39 years old, I'm more motivated by you know, long-term equity multiple. So I also invest passively in other people's deals outside of, outside of New York State in those high growth, low cap rate markets.
0: That is interesting to me. That I would not have predicted. How, how many different sponsors have you invested with as a limited partner? And what has your experience been?
1: I've invested in uh, three different deals. And it's actually the experiences have been great. I've loved it more than my day job. To be honest with you, so it's definitely a different side of the token to be on. Where you know sponsors are out there, they're finding deals, they're kissing a lot of frogs, they're you know great, you know raising capital. They have to run the deal, they have to put the whole capital stack together. It's a lot of work, and it, there's a lot of work that goes into for just to land a property under contract. So it's a great position to be in, one that I'd like to. Dedicate more time to being in over the next ten years uh, because I just didn't, en- you know, I just enjoy it. I'm able to kind of like look back at a high level at opportunities, and uh, those are ones that actually meet my investment, you know, my investment objectives better than we have in our own market. But at the same time, I have to be an active investor in my market because, you know, that's I have 17 years of experience in Rochester. I know every street. I know every player in the market. I know all the lenders. And I have, you know, that is an incredible asset that would be a shame for me to just not leverage.
0: Yeah, I, I get it. And you probably also, you know, I, I would assume that even though, you know, in investing passively with the right sponsor, right deal is what is, can be lucrative, it could be profitable. I would imagine you're still in some of the stuff you're doing, as painstaking as it is, I would imagine you're getting greater returns. For the deals you're doing locally, am I am I correct?
1: Absolutely. I mean, the definitely able to achieve equity multiples that are in alignment with my objectives. It's just there's a lot of work involved with it, and generally with our market, the kind of unique characteristics of it is that we can offer. We don't really care about the cash flow. We give the cash, you know, most of the cash flow to our investors, and we keep a substantial portion of the equity. So it kind of achieves that objective, but the it requires time, and time is the only resource I I definitely have limited amounts of.
0: Well, you know what you do. It sounds like you're already on that path. Is you you re you reinvest the money you're making locally into deals with other sponsors and turn it into purely passive income over time. What would you say is the? And you alluded to you know like when you buy an office building, it's you know let's say 50% vacant. You know it's it's kind of a it's an unknown who you're going to get as tenants, and you know, in the when and how and in who they are and all that kind of stuff. I get that as opposed to renting a you know two bedroom apartment. But what would you say other than filling the property? What are the biggest challenges to running office?
1: I think it's just a you know it's the lease up, which is the most difficult part of it. Typically, office users, at least the ones that we work with, are pretty sticky, so they'll go in on a five you know five year seven year deal. They're relocating their business there. So, uh, you know, just the idea of having to change their mailing address in the event that they, you know, they want to move, it just, you know, keeps them awake at night. So they t- typically stay for a long term. We invest in multifamily in higher income, younger areas. And, uh, you know, we have our residents that stay with us maybe maybe two, maybe three years. You know, bless our lucky stars if they do. But then they buy a house, they get married, you know, and that's what happens, right? So we have higher turnover, there's more management intensity. So I think that the, you know, you're completely right with office. It's the, it's the lease up and then keep your, tenants ha- you know, and keep your tenants happy. And it's an incredible asset class to
0: be in otherwise. Mm. What's the trajectory of Rochester?
1: So Rochester economically, I think it's organic growth of between two to three percent is something that you can count on with Rochester. It's never going to be more than that because we don't have the catalysts that are in other markets to create, you know, exponential growth or, you know, this hyperbolic growth that you see in other markets. The downside is, is really hedged against because our economy is undergirded by medical and education. We have some of the most robust medical systems and hospital systems that are right in our city. Now we have Unity Hospital, we have Rochester General Hospital, and we have Strong Hospital. And these are major hospitals that employ a lot of people. And people are always getting sick regardless of how the economy is doing. And then education wise i mean i can't even name all the institu- educational institutions that we have that are scattered around our metropolitan area but really you have that as it. and then we have a, a lot of a con- you know constellation of different technology and uh, light manufacturing companies they kind of fill up the rest of it so trajectory wise i can't really say i just can look in the past like you know since as we kind of like the phoenix rising from the ashes from Kodak, Bauch and and Xerox sort of leaving our area. We've been on this, you know, kind of steady eddy market. And it's definitely something that I like because I'm a risk adverse investor. You know, I'm a, you know, my mentors are Benjamin Graham and Warren Buffett. And so, you know, number one rule of investing is to not lose money. And the rule number two is to not forget rule number one.
0: Exactly. I didn't even know, man. I am like Rip Van Winkle. I didn't realize Baoshan and Xerox aren't there. Kodak is obviously everybody knows of that. Where did those companies go?
1: So Kodak is a story of a complete disintegration of a company. I mean, Kodak now is a real estate company, believe it or not. Bajalam and Xerox, they you know multinational you know globalization really was the story behind there. There's still a small footprint that you know that Xerox has in Rochester, but Balam is pretty much you know it's it's very, very much downsized from what it was before. And that's really what put stress and disinvestment in our in our community and what you and you kind of see the remnants of that today. But yeah, it kind of it is the story that, you know, when people think of Rochester, they think of the downfall of those three companies and they think of Rochester as like this like, you know, perpetually crippled rush-belt town. And that's just not the story. It's become a different it's become a different story and Rochester's coming coming to a new chapter.
0: Hmm. Yeah, did did not even know that. How would you, you know, we 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 were talking a little bit about office and it's the leasing component, you know, that's a that's a challenge. How would you contrast that to retail and and industrial? Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Retail and industrial are very, very strong right now in our markets. But also with industrial, it depends too. The product has to have certain characteristics to it. You got to have grade level doors. You have to have loading docks. Our objective with any industrial deal we do is that it can be easily demised down into smaller spaces if we needed to. So you know we don't want to get this like... Monster fifty thousand square foot like square box where you'd have you know a bunch of dead space in the middle. So we like buildings that are kind of like you know broke you know broken up in multiple editions that have many different access points around the property. In the event that we have to do that, retail strip is really strong. Retail strip plazas. I think that story is actually is is great. I think that Amazon has kind of had its like you know its play out from you know I'm going to buy my toothpaste and toilet paper from Amazon and all these different things. I've cut down on my Amazon purchases a lot. One is I have porch pirates. That's number one. And then two, I've had package delays, right? So something I was expecting tomorrow takes you know, a week and a half to get to me. So I definitely noticed myself just in terms of my own consumer habits going in person to bricks and mortar retail. Office, in terms of what we've acquired, it was an opportunistic and also a contrarian play. We kind of saw that the entire investment community redlined office out post-COVID. So, uh, we saw some great deals that were, you know, had very, very low risk. The most recent deal that we bought was like a 50,000 square foot high rise office building that was filled with long term government tenants. And that was a tenant mix that was extremely strong. And we bought it at an 8.6% cap rate. And this property had no deferred maintenance. And it was a major win for us. And plus, we have one of those tenants that we talked to during due diligence. That wants to take an additional 8,000 square feet of vacant space on the first floor, which is 100% of the remaining vacancy, and once we ink that deal, is going to add 1.7 million dollars to the asset value at about 120,000 dollars a year in cash flow. So those are the types of deals that we like. We like, you know, we like deals that you know are kind of like redlined out for no particular reason, rather than it's just office. Things have changed recently though, because we were able, you know, we we're going to get a smoking hot office deal. And the banks we brought it to, they were like, "We'll do max forty-five percent loan to value or max fifty percent loan to value." So we took a, a pause and being like, "Okay, we see some systemic things happening here in the capital markets as it pertains to this asset class. So let's kind of sit back and watch this and see the illiquidity in this space maybe turn into further distress, where we could come in and buy some buy some deals at a great basis."
0: Mm. What's the buyer pool look like for that kind of property? Are there, is there any, anybody from out of town, or is it local investors like yourself? Or you know, what what does the competitive set look like?
1: So our competitive set is mostly locally driven. So the buyer comp set for office is virtually non-existent. Nobody wants it in our area, and uh, we're not a market where we have institutional capital that floods into our market to buy things on speculation because. One, our asset values aren't, you know, they're not they're not high enough in terms of when you're looking at institutional capital that wants to place a large amount of capital. We're talking about, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. There's just not a market for that here. So we've definitely flown below the radar in terms of against the institutional guys.
0: So you're so you're not competing for these deals. It's just a matter of you 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 give them a a low ball offer or and, and they take it, they don't take it, it works with your underwriting or it doesn't. And that's pretty much what it is.
1: Exactly. It's a game of like, you know, playing say uncle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if that makes sense.
0: I heard a quote. I don't remember where the, I may have read it or whatever. I don't know. It just came to mind. And that is that if the offer you, may, if you're not embarrassed, if the offer isn't low enough that you feel embarrassed making it, you're offering too much.
1: Yeah, I've been in those scenarios before, but also, you know, this is the thing with commercial is that you always have to be dubious about hard and fast rules like that, at least in my opinion, because there's some deals that we bought, full, you know, that deal we bought just this year, you know, they were asking $2.75 million for it. It was a great deal at $2.75 million. We offer less than that. They counter back at full price. And we're like, all right, it still makes sense. So we did it. And there's deals that we paid full, you know, full price for that we knew that we smoking hot deals. So, but those ones that are on the market for quite some time and are getting a little stanky, there's a reason why they are. And people start getting nervous. And you really don't, you're not able to pull out the level of motivation until you come in with something that's like egregiously low to... And your number one objective is to get a response, right? So... And we've used that tactically before in the past two for properties
0: are getting stale. Mm. You know, it, it reminded me of another something that I read, and it's also a Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger thing. In fact, I think Charlie Munger convinced Warren Buffett of this to buy good companies at a fair price. In this case, it's real estate. Good real estate at a fair price <laughs> as, as opposed to buying bad companies at a cheap price so mm-hmm. that's kind of what you're what you're talking about you know it's yeah. a it's a very interesting dynamic and i guess like you're saying it's like in any of these cities you know you're going to have ha- you're going to have healthcare you're going to have education so i think the floor is only so low so you and you're you're, all, you're always going to have government so that if you're paying the right price you know i think it probably mitigates a, a tremendous amount of risk what does the competition look for like you said retail is hot and you said you know light industrial depending on the if the property has the right assets for a user what's the market look like for those asset classes
1: there's a very there's a very small pool of buyers in that class and i know all of them and i'm friends with them multifamily definitely is the is the most competitive asset class that's in our market and the problem we're having in our market is that the you know buyer needs in terms of return requirements And what they need to buy a property for is not coming in line with seller expectations and motivations for their bottom line walk away price. So, but there's still deals to be had in the retail and industrial. Definitely retail strip plazas, I think, are are a great opportunity in our market because still it's like one of those asset classes that people are still kind of afraid of, like with you know, online shopping and that sort of thing. We we talk to our tenants, we talk to other brokers, we see where the activity is going on at the street at the street level where the rubber hits the road. So we know that yeah, this whole mantra of the retail is dead is completely false. And so we found out great opportunities in lieu of that.
0: So you're saying though that the, the property owners though in strip retail, they're not capitulating though. They're, 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 they want a high price. And so it's not easy getting a good opportunity. Is that what you were alluding to earlier? For something that's uh, completely leased
1: up, that is being sold as like you know a coupon clipper to inv- uh, to investors, you're, you know you're going to pay a high price point for that. Generally speaking, the reason why we're we've been comfortable getting into office, for instance, is that you know we buy based upon in place in place financials and actuals and actual rent rolls today. So we don't pay for potential in those other asset classes. So when we buy a you know sixty five thousand square foot high rise office building. That's 50% occupant, occupied, we're buying it at a price where we're getting that 50% of, of vacancy for free. So anything that we sign in terms of leases is 100% cash flow coming into the deal. So you're able to rapidly increase asset value from there. So the deals we look at is like, let's say, a retail strip plaza where we have a you know, sort of like a tenant on the wings that has maybe 20% of the property that put their notice to vacate in to the owner, but then moving out. Or we're dealing with a current vacancy right now. That's really where you can actually get some good basis on your acquisitions. Is when there is some, you know, there's a whole there's a whole mantra like no pain, no sale. All right, and not you know a, a proper deal. It's like, well, just make me an offer. You know, give give me some stupid you know stupid offer where I'd, I'd be an idiot to walk you know to walk away from it. That's not a good position to be in, especially if you're a value add investor. Mm.
0: So basically, on, on, on the retail side, the properties that are doing well, there's not generally there's not a, there's not a lot of deals that just make sense because somebody somebody's managed the property well, they know what they have. There's not been deferred maintenance. You don't see a lot of distress there, so they have no reason to sell it for less than what it's worth. Is there a lot of I guess, what is the occupancy in in the submarkets that you would buy? Are there are there a lot of opportunities where you can... You look at a center and it's been deferred for whatever reason and, and you know that you could fill it up? Or what's, what's the general gist?
1: So when we're looking at, for instance, like an office product, small office is leasing and there's a lot of demand there. So when we look at a deal where there's maybe a hole in the property from a vacancy standpoint... We look at okay, can we demise this ten thousand square foot office suite down into uh, you know let's say eight to ten smaller office suites that would be attractive to a typical white collar professional type of business like a CPA, insurance company, or a therapist, and that's kind of the you know the way we look at those types of those types of deals.
0: How many deals did you do in O three O two just total the, across all asset classes?
1: Twenty, twenty-two, and twenty-three. Yeah. Okay. We do one deal a year, so I think that we bought a deal in twenty-two. And we bought a deal in twenty-three, and this is just kind of how we operate. We're super picky. We're not super. I mean, we're super active in the space in terms of touring properties, looking, you know, making offers and that sort of thing. But you know, we're not in a uh, you know feed the beast type of type of business model where we need to take down acquisition, you know, a certain amount of acquisitions every year. So. We are, you know, I still consider ourselves, you know, pretty small, com- uh, pretty small company, just buying, you know, one bigger deal a year and just pushing the envelope on that deal size each time. So we know that we're keeping ourselves intellectually stimulated and feel like we're, you know, challenging ourselves and uh, growing.
0: Are you in a position where you don't have to feed the beast because of your property management company feeds you and your partner?
1: So, what, so David Martin, my partner, is director of operations for our management company so his you know he gets food put on the table because he runs that company and that company earns management fees off the assets that we that we own and manage and then for my uh, for myself i mean i'm in you know the i was a real estate broker i'm in you know the i'm also in the education space as well working with residential real estate investors that are looking to scale into commercial properties so we don't need to buy deals we're completely sustained the way that we are right now which allows us to be pa- you know to be patient and uh, you know, let, that work for, you know, let that work for us and for the deals we put together for, for ourselves and our investment partners. Mm.
0: In terms of your acquisitions, do you have a time horizon? Are you guys you know, try to sell these things in two to three years or five years? Or do you, are, you, are you thinking more in terms of longer term holds? What's your view on that?
1: We're holdlers, man. So we got something that we're... You know, we, when we look at a deal, if we couldn't see ourselves owning it for 20 to 30 years, then we pass. So we're long-term buy, we're long-term buy-and-hold investors. So we don't have. Yes, it's important to have exit strategies and multiple exit strategies with all of your deals, just so you know you have a way out if things go sideways. Several ways out. It's just like when you're in a, a high-rise building, right? It's like okay, I got you know if this building catches on fire, I got a fire escape. I have two means of egress in terms of stairwells. I have uh, two pasture elevators. I have a freight elevator that I can do to get out of this deal. So I have, you know, I don't like to even look at one exit strategy. I like to look at multiple exit strategies with our deal, and we bake that in when we go in. But no, we have, you know, our objective is we're at about, you know, kind of half a million square feet so far, and we're looking to scale to a million square feet within the next couple of years. But you know, we're not going to put ourselves into a bad deal or a mediocre
0: deal. To achieve that, you know, it sounds like you're really, really very thoughtful, intentional about what you do. And it's impressive. I mean, so many people, it's just like they brag about the assets under management, and, you know, half of them, they're not distributing anything to their investors. But yet, we're, mm-hmm. we're buying more. What kind of debt do you, you take on in different properties?
1: The great thing about our market is that we, you know, we're buying deals between an 8 and 9% cap rate in good areas that banks want to lend on. So, we're getting 80% loan to value typically on all of our deals. Our acquisitions and also refis and it's still easy to meet that service coverage ratio of 1.25 on those deals. So, Allows us to leverage the, you know, banks' cheaper money so that we can pay our investors a higher rate of re- rate of return. But, you know, the markets that I passively invest in, though, I mean, those are low leverage deals because even if you're getting a great deal on it, you know, you got to put 50% down to make D, you know, DSCR on those on those deals. But it's good that we're in a market that we have cap rates that are favorable to, you know, to kind of like that 20, 25% down payments.
0: Do you do you do floating or is you doing fixed or a mix? So we won't do a deal unless
1: we're fixed for five years. We've done deals that were fixed for 10. Didn't ask for it, but we would know, take a term sheet around and shop it around to a couple of our lending partners. And uh, you know, we did a deal where, all right, we'll do it you know, to get your business. We'll do a 10-year 10 10 year fixed on it. And she's like, okay, well, we'll probably refinance it before then. As long as there's no prepayment penalty, we're, we're game with that. But generally fixed for five at least.
0: So did you guys do any variable debt or no?
1: No, it scares me, man. It's always, scar- it's always scared me. I don't like I'm afraid of the dark. I don't like the unknown. <laughs> and so you know me you know basing you know putting a lot of my I guess well-being and the well-being of our investors in the hands of you know Jerome Powell and the other people in the Fed you know if they it's like if they if they fart in their pants and don't like the way it feels then you know they could you know axe your business plan and put a hurting on you. So we like we like to have fixed variable just is not comfortable for us.
0: Yeah, my goodness gracious. Yeah. Again, so I knew I wanted to talk to you for a reason. What What would you say is the uh, biggest mistake that you made, and and what did you learn from it along the way?
1: Oh God, I've been I've made so many painful, painful mistakes. I'm trying to think of one here. Maybe I think that going, you know, when I started gravitating towards commercial properties, I should have gotten help. I did things on my own, and uh, I, you know, I went through some of the most guttingly, crushingly brutal mistakes that you could possibly imagine. So that's probably my biggest mistake was, was not not getting somebody that on my team that knew what they were doing and uh, could guide us through the process to not only eliminate the doubt and uncertainty that's associated with like, you know, being a lonely business owner, but also avoiding some of the mistakes that are, you know, painful in the process because you scale, you know, you swim upstream into larger deals. Yeah, real estate's the idiot's business, right? You have, you know, wide margins of error. But those margins of error, you know, they have a couple, they have an extra comma on them and some extra zeros. So, you know, something that might be a kick to the teeth when you make a mistake on a smaller deal is uh, could, you know, basically stab you in the gut and leave you bleeding out on the floor when it comes to commercial. So, yeah, so that's what I would say.
0: See, and here I I thought you were gonna say, you know, it, when it's smaller, it's a kick to to the teeth. When it's significantly bigger, it's a kick to something else. But you you you, you went <laughs> a different direction. <laughs> Listen, Matt Drew, and how how does one get a hold of you to find out more about what you're doing and you know potentially participate with you in something that you are in, involved in down the road?
1: Yeah, connect me. You know, connect to me on social media. I'm active across all the channels in terms of LinkedIn. Facebook, Instagram, I put a lot of content out there that's value-add educational type of content is probably like 95% of what I do out there. I'm just trying to you know be evangelical about going bigger. I don't think that all these, you know, all the big properties that are in people's communities need to be owned by only a few families. I think that we can democratize that. So I'm trying to encourage, you know, wider spread ownership and spreading it around. So that's kind of like what the message behind my content is. Got
0: it. Well, Matt I have really, really, really enjoyed this conversation. And yeah, and I want to do it again. And I'm just so glad we got to meet. And uh, yeah, I can't thank you enough.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Definitely willing to do a part two. I enjoyed myself too. And I'm willing to go into more of the gory detail with some of my mistakes. (laughs) That does sound interesting.
0: I got to tell you, that (laughs) does sound interesting. All right, man. Well, I will talk to you soon. It sounds router. Take care. Thanks. Bye.